You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your excessively non-compliant host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your incredibly over-compliant host, Shane. You are so so docile. <laughs> so docile. So so mellow. Just just tell me what to do and I'm there. We are a psychology podcast. We like to tackle all things psychology related. And even if we can fit that square peg into a round hole and make it psychology, we will do that thing. We have done and that several times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of it's almost becoming the the norm yeah. anymore. Mm -hmm. Which is great. And so welcome if this is your first time joining us. If not, we are talking about applied behavior analysis. This is our fifth part of a series of discussions that we are doing around, I guess, a trend that has been going on for a few years now. I mean, is sort of ebbed and flowed, but is is in the, a flow, if you will. Yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> in much. In which some people are critical of the field of, of applied behavior analysis and have some things to say about what they don't like about it. So we have been addressing those arguments point by point. And if you have not been following along, I do believe that this episode will more or less stand on its own, but you might also find a lot of value in hitting the foundation for this by listening to the previous episodes if you haven't already. Yeah, I mean, we are trying to, as we've said before, trying to make sure that these episodes do stay isolated in that they are a discussion on their own so that you are able to listen to it, to absorb the information, to be able to provide us feedback on specific topics within this because we felt like this was such a big topic and such a complex topic that we couldn't tackle it all in a single episode. We wanted to really take the time for everybody to kind of absorb the information and to attend to it in a really meaningful way. Just to recap really quick, the things that we've, we've covered in our very first episode, we more or less outlined what we were going to be talking about and specifically identified the people who are making these criticisms although we left out a group of what you might call ABA reformers in that discussion. Mm -hmm. In the second topic, we talked about the history of punishment and the use of punishment in behavior analysis and negative reinforcement. And the following episode, we discussed the outcome that happens that sometimes when people who are neurodiverse experience applied behavior analysis services, sometimes the things that they learn don't necessarily look to a lay person like totally normal, what they might call normal behavior. Mm -hmm. And so they almost appear robotic is sort of the, way, the term that's used and, and that we used. And then the, the most recent episode prior to this, we talked about how oftentimes what a individual experiences or learns, the skills that they pick up from their experience with ABA do not necessarily carry outside of that therapeutic environment. And we see this lack of application to real world scenarios. And so that's, I think, anything I missed? No, I mean, that pretty much covers it. Those are the main topics. And, and you know, we're going to continue to hit topics that have kind of come up in the arguments or criticisms and try to dispel them or at least give some insight on this from a uh, what, what's the term that we're using? We're trying to give some grace to both sides of this argument or the many sides of this argument. We're trying to yeah. be charitable. That's the word I'm looking for. We're trying to be charitable to every side and, and have a discussion around this and really kind of pick these apart because it's not just that. Yes, ABA creates robotic kids or no, ABA does not create robotic kids. It's very much so a nuanced discussion within that. And you'll see that as you go through every one of these episodes. And today's episode isn't really going to be any different. Perfect. Well, so what are we talking about today, Shane? So today we get to talk about compliance. It is a common discussion in our field. 
And specifically, the argument is going to be that, quote, all ABA therapists try to do is get kids to follow every direction and not think for themselves. At least the methods can result in what we call overcompliance. So that's really what we're going to be talking about, this idea of compliance, overcompliance, and the methods that people argue that ABA teaches, like compliance to authority and things like that. Right. So to make sure that we characterize this argument as correctly as we can, I believe that what I was reading and what people were saying is essentially that in this applied behavior analysis setting, that this setting forces kids to sit a certain way, to maintain eye contact, and to do exactly what is asked of them instantly and without question, just total obedience. And essentially what the argument kind of goes on to, to look at, too, is that they're making kids do just whatever they're told without being able to think for themselves, without knowing why they're being told to do it, without any sort of like critical thinking or rationale behind it, and to not want to do anything for themselves. So within this discussion, you're talking about people just doing things that other people ask them to do without any regard for their own safety, well-being and things like that. I think that captures it more or less. So just to say it one more time to make sure everything is clear. The argument is stating that applied behavior analysis in these therapeutic settings enforces a a ridiculously high level of compliance mm -hmm. and does not allow wiggle room aside from that. I think that's, there's an implication that there is there's little to no wiggle room around non-compliance. You know, when you think about how this could branch out and become a larger issue, I mean, you think about like, what does, what does compliance mean in that regard, right? Compliance means that like, if you're, if you have literally any adult asking a learner to do something and they do it, that puts that person at risk for harm or just some kind of safety risk, some kind of danger to themselves or to somebody else that in itself presents a unique concern. And we'll, and we'll kind of spend some time talking about that too. Yeah. That's a great point that I didn't think to include initially was that the implication of overcompliance means people doing things that are not in their best interest. Mm -hmm. You can easily manipulate someone to do things for you that they shouldn't have to do, or they shouldn't feel compelled to do. And then don't feel like they have a choice to make decisions for themselves. Right. And so I think that that's the important implication as a part of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth looking at the argument. And we'll probably talk about this when we talk, when we get into kind of the rebuttal of this too, the idea of the difference between like overcompliance and naivety especially when you work with like learners that we work with sometimes it's like you have learners that are compliant because they're naive to adult you know authority and stuff like that they kind of appeal to authority versus like over compliance when they're taught to listen to everything an adult says and there is we I kind of want to spend some time unpacking that a little bit too yeah fair so let's actually let's go ahead and dig into this so what what do we say in response to the accusation that ABA enforces overcompliance overcompliance is a very real concern a very real consideration, a very real concern when we're looking at teaching skills to learners that we serve. Yeah, it is absolutely unethical to train people to simply do everything and anything they're told without any sort of respect to that person's dignity and without any respect to that person's well-being. That is 100 percent a legitimate concern that we want to look at if we're if we're teaching skills around this particular kind of set of behaviors. And I don't think that the point that the criticizers, if you will, are making is that we should have no compliance whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just to, trying to be charitable, as charitable as possible to the argument, I think you could easily say, well, what you know, what are you going to do instead? Just have no compliance? And I don't think that's what they're saying. I don't think they're saying no compliance. That would be problematic. And there are really no circumstances in which zero compliance would be acceptable or tolerated. So we're operating under the assumption 
that the argument is the ABA enforces too much compliance or mm-hmm. that it enforces it at all in some cases. And if I'm wrong, then that's a separate discussion, I think. But that's just to be clear, I think, where they're coming from. Let's put that into some like social norm perspective for a second, right? So like there are circumstances where we have to comply with certain rules and guidelines, right? Like we, if we're driving a car, we can't decide that we're going to run through a red light without risk of danger or harm, right? So there is a level of compliance with adhering to driving laws and rules as we go. Yeah. You know, like, let's say we go to a theme park and there are specific guidelines for getting into a ride. Like we have to stand in line and we have to wait behind the next person. There are like social norms around that. And if I decided that norm and skip to the head of the line, I'm likely to get kicked out of a, a theme park as a result of that. So in these circumstances where every day of our lives, you know, we are kind of attending to these social norms, there is like a level of like general compliance for just guidelines and rules, right? I can't walk into a grocery store and put a bunch of stuff in a shopping cart and walk out, right? There are like certain levels of compliance that go along with like following and adhering to those guidelines, to those rules specifically in those spaces. So when we kind of look at this, like we want to be able to kind of frame it a little bit. So it's like, well, there is like a certain level that we all have to comply with certain social norms. Yeah, absolutely. And so to come back to as the actually one of the first things you were saying is that over compliance, it, it can happen. It can happen in applied behavior analysis. It can happen in other settings, really anywhere in which following instructions is, is expected and enforced. I think you can see this in work settings. I think this is often happens when you have the I was just doing what I was told sort of argument, which we we actually did a we had a discussion about that with obedience a while back. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens sometimes is that just looking at this from the perspective of the person who's on the front line, the therapist who's in the chair, they're working with a kid. They're probably coming at this from, I have a job to do, which is help teach a kid how to read, how to walk, how to feed themselves, how to talk, how to get dressed and on and on. There's, you know, there's a, there's a tall order of expectations, a closing window of time in which to execute on those expectations and are expected to produce these results in this relatively quick turnarounds, right? And so for the person, this therapist in the chair or practitioner or whatever you want to call them, I think they're sometimes so focused on producing results that they might excessively emphasize compliance with instructions and demands in the, we need to get this done. We need to get this done. We need to get this done. So like, I'm going to really heavily emphasize like, okay, I need you to do this so that we can get through as much of this as possible as quickly as possible. And there is more focus on just get through it. Yeah. And so I think just that's a perspective to take in consideration that the people who are actually on the ground executing this, they have a very specific set of expectations under which they're operating that are not necessarily looking at the big picture all the time. And not to say that they can't or won't, but I think that the immediate circumstances can feel like a lot of pressure in the moment. Yeah. And I think you can make an argument with that, that like there's maybe an issue of like over compliance with that too. Like, like very strict. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Like you can make the argument that that exists there too. And that's not unique to ABA. I mean, how many times have we had a job where we're like, we have to follow these rules or X, Y, and Z will happen. I have to, I have to do this at my job. If I don't meet this deadline, then I'm going to, you know, X, Y, and Z. And while we can make the argument that those are probably choices that we make, right. We chose to stay in those jobs and stuff like that. I mean, that is worth looking at. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times the therapists that we work with are like, hey, this is the expectation. This is the overall goal. How do we get there? And think about like really kind of looking at that larger picture and not looking at in that moment. Am I teaching a skill that could be problematic later? And this just comes back to the point that we have made and will continue to make that this this is the reason that constant training and supervision are both extremely necessary and required. Mm -hmm. And 
why we have systems in place to continue to raise the bar on what kind of qualifications are needed to perform these services and what kind of training is required to get credentialed and certified and all of these these systems to try and catch where these mistakes are happening and that continue to get refined and hopefully prevent this kind of thing from continuing to slip through the cracks where it occurs. Yeah. I think another point to make too is that when you look at this idea of compliance, a lot of times behavior therapists or ABA practitioners are operating in spaces where there are other guidelines and other policies in place that we're also having to attend to as well. So for example, if I'm working in a school, then when I'm working in a school, I'm having to work with teachers to maybe prevent that overcompliance reliance for those teachers, right? So like you go into a classroom and sometimes the teachers will say, everybody needs to sit down. You need to raise your hand to speak. And there is no attending to the unique needs of some of the learners we serve. Right. And I can give you a perfect example. I worked with an eight-year-old child who was in a classroom who could not sit for a while. I mean, for a long period of time and would struggle and refuse to use pencils for handwriting. I mean, became this unique problem. And it's, and so what would happen is the teacher would be like, you have to use a pencil or you're going to get in trouble. And it, that yeah. would throw this kid into a tantrum, you know? And so we're like, well, if the goal is, and this is something that we have to look at is like, what's the goal is the goal getting them to write with a pencil or is the goal getting them to attend to the material so they can learn these skills. Yeah. And so when I was talking to the teacher, you know, we were saying, well, the goal is for them to gain the material, to gain the knowledge. So what are some different ways that we can kind of set up the environment so this person can contact this, right? And so what we did was when she would do math, she would use a dry erase marker and write on the windows and do her math on the windows. And she attended every single math lesson from then on because she was able to do all of her equations on the windows. Right. And we eventually transferred that over back to like, you know, cause she's not gonna be able to do that in every classroom. What if there's no plate glass windows to write on, you know, yeah. when she's writing her essays, she's writing with colored pencils. Right. So that we made those opportunities more fun for her. It wasn't necessarily a compliance issue is really more so, Hey, she's in second grade. If she doesn't learn this stuff, then she's going to get held back in second grade and she's going to get, get held back in second grade again. And it's going to be a, a different type of social problem for her and become more socially isolating. So we kind of had to, I want to say like kind of like loosen up with the teacher so that they weren't being over compliant in that space. Yeah. It sounds like I think what, what happened there and, and happens in a lot of different places and probably happens in some of the situations where over compliance can become an issue is the sort of power struggle dynamic, right? Where you feel like you're trying to control a situation and the kid's sort of fighting back against it. Mm -hmm. And so you end up employing multiple strategies to eventually to get them to do what you want them to do. And not necessarily thinking about like, do I really need this to happen that way? Like, right. is there maybe a better or different way to do this? Right. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. It's just taking that zoomed out view of sort of what are we doing? What's our goal? What's the outcome that we want to have happen here? I think it's a really good point. And I also want to, I want to issue just coming back to the, the fact that we do need some amount of compliance. Like we do have to learn, like, I think that there, there are a lot of circumstances in which we just need to look at the context and make a decision based on what's going on in that, in that circumstance for that individual. So as you said, like using a colored pencil versus like a regular pencil, very low stakes. There's not really a reason to feel like we need to enforce the use of a specific type of pencil in that situation. Right now in other safety situations, we might, we might not be able to be as flexible. Like it's just gotta be this way to protect your safety. Right. But I think we also, when we're in these situations where we're trying to help somebody, we're trying to teach them something, or we're trying to guide them to do something new or what have you, that we have to have some amount of compliance to get it to work. 
And so just being clear that saying, again, I don't think that the argument is saying that we should have no compliance, but the therapist's job more or less is to get as much compliance as they can to be able to work on certain skills. And I think we just need to be mindful again of where we, we don't want to overemphasize that. Well, real quick, I think something too within this is you hear us keep using the word compliance and I, and I feel like maybe that's kind of a misnomer for what we need. Like it's not necessarily that we need, we need compliance. It's not necessarily that we are requiring this person to do certain things. What we need is engagement, right? Like we, that's really kind of, Oh, that's so much better. Yeah. I mean, that's really kind of what we're looking at is like, we're not forcing anybody to complete homework assignments. We're not forcing anybody to do those things. But if we can get engagement, then we have a better opportunity to build on skills that are pivotal skills for somebody to learn better skills later. Right. Like if I'm trying to get somebody to communicate my I'm not going to sit them down and force them to use a PEX board. Right. Like that's not my goal. My goal is to get them to engage with the materials that we have so that we can have opportunities to learn a skill and to actually engage with communicative behaviors. Right. And so it's, it becomes, yeah, it becomes less about it's, it's very much so less about compliance and more about engagement with those necessary skills, I would say. I love that. I think that you just rewrote essentially the theme of this entire discussion for this episode, <laughs> which is, yes, you're right. Like en- engagement is the, is the thing that we want to have happen because that would facilitate it. And engagement, I think, leaves the door open for flexibility. Yes. And the kind of things that we're looking for. And it actually reminds me a long time ago, I want to say episode like 50 or something. We, we had a discussion with Dr. Megan Miller where she, the episode was on earning instructional control. And that's how she described it was this engagement process. And it actually comes back to one of the things that can happen is that to work with kids, one of the foundations we need to have is some amount of rapport, meaning that we have a relationship with that individual that they are willing to work with us. And when we do that, then we get some engagement. And sometimes what I think can happen is that if the therapist or the instructor or the coach, whatever you want to call that frontline person, if they're really good at this, they can get a lot of buy-in from these these individuals. And then these individuals are very willing to essentially engage with that, that instructor, sometimes to the point where it's like we almost need to then teach them like you need to be you need to tell me no sometimes. Yeah. Right. Like I might just keep asking you to do things and you're just gonna keep you're willing to keep doing them because you like this therapy, this session so much. And that's great. But sometimes when you don't want to do them, you gotta learn to tell me no. And I think that, that that is another sort of side to this that's really interesting is it's not forced, it's not coerced, but it's earned to the point that like we almost have more power than we would expect to have. Yeah, it's very much so like it's that phrase like you never work a day in your life if you love what you do, right? Like you hear yeah. that and it's like that's absolutely what it is. I mean, now again, like there are moments, there are specific situations where compliance is necessary. Like we've talked about, like you have to comply with certain safety rules, right? If I'm working in a space where let's say I'm working in an iron factory. Like I have to comply with rules or I'm going to end up burning my hands off. Right. Like I'm not going <laughs> to like, I, there are certain rules where you have to comply, Yeah. but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, there is this, this whole discussion and I feel like that gets lost in the conversation about compliance. Cause it's not that we're aiming for compliance. We're building therapeutic rapport, therapeutic relationships. We're building engagement and we're working in those spaces where it is supposed to be on the learner's terms, not on ours. And now that we have certain goals within that, but it still should be on the learner's terms. And that's where you see today in ABA, you see a much larger conversation about assent in terms of consent and assent. You see assent more often discussed and absolutely. So, I mean, that's that's really kind of the value that we should be looking at within this. 
And I think sometimes the compliance piece is a problem, right? The over compliance piece becomes a problem. I think sometimes compliance gets mischaracterized as something different, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, the goal is really engagement more than anything else. I love that. That reminds me, I think, I think it was Pat Fryman or maybe, maybe I've heard this from a few different people, but they said something along the lines of, I try to be non-compliant at least 10 times a day or something like that. (laughs) You know, essentially what they're saying is advocate for yourself. Don't just do what other people ask of you. Advocate for yourself. Yeah. That point is raised in the context of when we work with these neurodiverse individuals, we want them to advocate for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. That is, that is within our values as a field and as a science. Yeah, absolutely. I think that goes to another point too, is like when, when we are practitioners, we're practitioners and we're working in these spaces that one thing that we need to really try to do is remain vigilant to their dignity and respect, right? Like when we're working with learners and, and as somebody who comes from a psychology background, this is no different, mm-hmm. right? Like the idea is that when we talk about dignity, we're talking about serving a person. We are servant practitioners. We serve the folks that we are working with. And because of that, we should always be maintaining the dignity of that person and the context of a therapeutic session. So it, it remains exactly that. What we're doing is designed to be therapeutic and individually based. So as we're working in these spaces, it's not my goals that you're implementing. It's we've worked together to work on these things. Here are some steps that we need to take. How do I get you to engage with me to work on these goals that you've identified? Like that's the therapeutic process. That is a therapeutic relationship. And I don't know that behavior analysis spends enough time talking about that therapeutic relationship or that therapeutic process. They talk about goals. They talk about recording things, you know, measurement and all that, but they don't really talk about that therapeutic process quite enough. And definitely it has come up. And I don't know, you know, how well, how well it resonates with all people, or maybe, maybe it does just need more time and attention, mm-hmm. but where we see this breakdown is, as you mentioned earlier, this is human error. This is not applied behavior analysis error. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, we have these systems to try and address these things as we move forward. Those systems continue to improve. It feels like every year or two, there are updates to our code of ethics, to our certification requirements, to our supervision requirements that have us operate on new and updated guidelines and information. And that's where we want to be. We want to be a developing field that learns and grows and evolves with greater knowledge and greater consideration. And particularly with greater, what is, has been something that has really been increasing over the last several years, maybe the last several decades, but really the last several years is a lot more input from the voices of people in the community that we serve from people with autism diagnoses, being able to speak up and make contributions. And we have a listening for that. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, ultimately it comes down to this, right? The point of teaching over compliance and the skills develop, it's an absolute valid one. It becomes a concern because, you know, at the end of the day, folks who become over compliant end up being at more risk of harm. So that concern is legitimate from that, that far end of the spectrum, but it's also legitimate in the sense that if somebody's over compliant, then they're not making choices or they don't have the autonomy or they're not advocating for themselves well enough to. And so as a field, we need to strive to do better for our clients. We need to strive to recognize when we are engaged with too much compliance training. And this is an area that we can and absolutely should do better in. I mean, without a doubt, we, we're not going to argue for compliance training really, because at the end of the day, we can do better. Right. Yeah, I think one of the biggest take homes I'm going to I'm going to steal from you a little bit is that I think a better way to to think of this is engagement is that behavior analysts work for to get a high level of engagement with the people whom we serve. 
Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's that's really kind of the theme for this, like as a as a moving forward to do better. One hundred percent. We should be looking at engagement, not compliance. Cool. And then another take home point I'm thinking of is just th- considering that. So the argument here is that behavior analysis teaches too much compliance. And I think in response to that, I would say that it's this certainly can happen. I think it's it's legitimate to be concerned about that happening. And it is something that we have some systems in place to address. We are developing better systems in place to address. We can and should do better about addressing this and ensure that we are not striving too much for compliance and instead earning engagement. Yep, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Do you have any other take home points on that? Nope. That's the that's the main one that I would make. Perfect. Let's do a listener mail. Yay. Okay, this comes from Sean. This is kind of a long one, but I, I distilled down some of his main points from the entire communication that, that I had with him. And this is in reference more or less to the entire series that we're doing. He says, quote, I've been actively doing applied behavior analytic work for about 12 to 13 years, with the focus of my work largely being individuals with autism or other developmental disabilities. We're a young science and there are always growing pains when establishing something new. And there was a lot of bad stuff done in the name of behavior analysis in the past, just as there were barbaric practices during the formation of medical science. It's true. Mm -hmm. Big difference here is that our science is so young that there are literally people still alive who are around when some of the less ethical practices were still being done. Mm -hmm. Also true. Good point. That can't be undone. But that is why we continue moving forward to establish ethical guidelines, overseeing board certifications, etc. I don't think anything can be done about this issue other than the passage of time creating more distance from the earlier practices. The previous lack of any sort of board or certification also means a lot of people could, and some probably still do, call themselves behavior analysts while not actually knowing much about the principles. And I would add probably adding some people knowing nothing about them at all. Mm -hmm. It's the same for someone impersonating a doctor and screwing up someone's life. On that note, horror stories and those who cause harm are publicized much louder than those properly doing their job. End quote. So first, thanks very much, Sean, for writing in and for that, the points that you made there. I think, you know, one of that I did particularly like right at the very end was the fact that we tend to notice when things go wrong mm-hmm. and the number of times that someone executes a flawlessly awesome session hour of therapy with one of these individuals probably outnumbers the times when things go badly, like 10,000 to one, you know, yeah. or yeah. much higher than that. The services are are ongoing all over the place. Right now, as we speak, there are some people out there who are implementing behavior analytic services and doing a stellar job of it. As you're hearing this, that's happening as well. Yeah. And so I guess just to say that I guess the squeaky wheel gets the grease sort of idiom, if you will. Yeah. One point that I would want to make too, and and, and again, thank you for writing in because this is I think this is super insightful. The one thing I would say though is that while the passage of time might heal certain things where you have some folks who have been exposed to it, I agree, but that I don't think that that can be the solution. And I don't know that's what you're saying here. So, I mean, please feel free to correct me if you're, if I'm wrong or anything like that, but I feel like the passage of time is something that will benefit the field, but I don't know that that's anything active that we can do now. And I think because we have so much information now and we have so much material now, we have so much insight now about what's going on. I think that we have to be intentional about doing the things that we're doing to improve anyway. I mean, while the passage of time is good, I think that we can all be catalysts to do better right now and kind of speed up that process. And while we can't distance ourselves from those events, what we can do is we can make the systems change faster if we are open and vocal and advocate for those folks who are 
still involved and who are still around and also listening to those folks who have experienced that so that we can leverage those voices with them and create a collaborative environment to help kind of move that process along faster. I think that's kind of a big value of what we're looking at here is like we could sit back and let the time pass and all that, but I don't know that that would be beneficial for anybody involved right now. Yeah. And I think, and just to be charitable again, I, I don't know that that's exactly what's being advocated here. I, I think I, I agree with you that you're right, that it, we should view this as an opportunity to take an active role in moving this forward. Yeah. And then I think Sean's element is that as that stuff is in the rear view for us, it doesn't need to continue to define us. Yeah. And that we can we can rewrite what our characterization and what our definitions are going to be as we, as we move forward. So I think that's how I, I'd balance that because I not to say that you're just you're necessarily disagreeing, but I think just to continue to to find where I think the points are being made and and where there's overlap. I think that's just like that's just a particular nuance. I don't think that that's I don't think that the listener mail was very much so like no we need to let time pass and that's it. Like I didn't get that vibe, so don't worry, yeah. <laughs> Sean. I didn't think that of you, so I'm not I'm not trying to dog you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for writing in, Sean. Uh, do you have anything else before we move on to some recommendations? Uh, no. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. recommendations my recommendation is do things you don't normally do for fun so it sounds kind of general you know i am for those of you who don't know like right now i'm recording from a countertop in hawaii not a place that i would have ever planned to go in my life as somebody (laughs) who is um ghost white and the sun i'm pretty much allergic to the sun i'm like i'm pretty much a vampire that doesn't drink blood so this is not a trip that i normally would have made this is not um a situation i would normally be in And yesterday I went hiking down a slippery clay, muddy trail, almost fell down a waterfall to go jump in some lava pools. You know, that's not something I ever thought in my life I would do. And it was a blast and it was just really wonderful. So I just that's my recommendation. Just do things that you would be a little bit outside of your comfort zone and do it for fun because it's a it's a nice experience. Cool. I like that. Yeah, I thought so. I'm going to recommend a band. So this is band as far as I know is still around. And I sort of rediscovered this one album in particular. So the band is called Reliant K and <laughs> they're sort of this pop punk band with piano and very clever lyrics. I was like, I thought the lyricist was very clever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this album in particular is called forget and not slow down. And it is one of my absolute favorites um, from this band. And this, this album I, I re- sort of recently rediscovered and sort of shuffling through my music and found songs. It's just like every song on there is just, just so good. So if you are are looking for something melodic and upbeat and fun for most of the album, I would recommend you check out Reliant K forget and not slow down. I love like finding bands that you used to listen to and like rediscovering yeah. them. And you're like, Oh yeah, this was such a good album. Like you forgot how good that album was. And then you discover it again. You're like, this is, this is wonderful. What a great, what a great discovery. Yeah. Some of them don't always hold up so well, but this one held up extraordinarily well. I was like, wow, this is just as good now, if not better. <laughs> I love it. Cool. Before we go, if you would like to support the show, hey, I'm rhyming, <laughs> you can support us on Patreon. Speaking of which, I'd like to follow, thank the following Patreon people, Justine, Megan, Mike, and Shauna. If you'd like to join that list of very cool names, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com. We have several tiers. You can join us for as little as a dollar a month. You get access to un- uncut episodes, early releases, bonus episodes, recording notes, if you want those videos of us recording our pajamas on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All good things <laughs> yep. that you probably you probably want in your life, as well as we're adding some some bonuses for discounts on merch, which we'll be launching 
hopefully very soon. So if you would like to contact us like Sean did, then you can email us at info at www.podcast.com. We're also on all the social media platforms, particularly Instagram and Twitter, I think is where we're the most active. You can also, of course, reach us on Facebook and the other places and let us know what you think about overcompliance and engagement and and all the other topics that we've covered in this issue or if you have something else completely random to say you'd like to recommend a topic for us to tackle or you'd like to just tell us uh how much you enjoy the sound of our voice we like hearing that stuff too yeah that's true do you have anything else shane nope that's all i got today all right thank you so much for recording with me today thank you everyone for listening this is abraham this is shane we're out see ya You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. 